to this episode of the Australian Naval History Podcast series where we examine important events in the Royal Australian Navy's history. Hello, I'm Commander Greg Swindon. The Royal Australian Navy's longest serving flagship was the aircraft carrier HMAS Melbourne. She fulfilled that role for most of her 27 years. In this, the second of two episodes, we shall discuss the latter part of the eventful career of HMAS Melbourne and what it was like to serve in her. I'm joined today by, firstly, one of her captains, Rear Admiral Rothsay Swan, who joined the Navy in 1940 as a 13-year-old cadet midshipman. He served in the Philippines campaign in World War II, including being the officer of the watch in the cruiser HMAS Shropshire at the Battle of Surigao Strait. He went on to command the frigate Derwent, the destroyer Hobart in the Vietnam War, before commanding Melbourne during 1977-78. I'm also joined by one of her aircrew, Commodore Jack McCaffrey, whose flying career was spent mainly in Grumman trackers, flying from HMAS Melbourne and the Naval Air Station at Nowra. Currently, he is a visiting fellow at the University of Wollongong and the University of New South Wales at the Defence Academy. He recently co-authored the book Wings of Gold, the story of the Australian pilots and observers who trained with the United States Navy during 1966 and 1968. Finally, I'm joined by one of the ship's engineers, Commander Tom DeVoyle, who was the ship's marine engineering officer. His involvement with HMAS Melbourne began with his first posting to sea. Over his career, he was posted to her again, once as a watchkeeping engineering officer and later as the marine engineering officer. After his naval career, he spent 10 years at 10X Shipyard, involved in the construction of the third HMAS Melbourne, as well as Newcastle and the 10 Anzac-class frigates. Gentlemen, welcome. Firstly, Tom DeVoyle. Perhaps the greatest contribution that Melbourne made was her leading role in Operation Navy Help Darwin, following the 1974 Cyclone Tracy devastation of Darwin. Can you briefly outline the task and her contribution? As we know, Tracy hit Darwin in the early hours of Christmas Day, 74. It struck Darwin directly, causing damage and destruction to over 70% of the buildings in the city. There was a four-metre storm surge, and the anemometer at the airfield recorded 217 kilometres an hour before self-destructing. And our patrol boat, HMAS Arrow, sank in the uh, harbour with the loss of two lives. 69 people were killed ashore. Early on the morning of Christmas Day, the decision had been made to sail the fleet to assist disaster relief. (laughs) Most of the fleet was in Sydney on leave and for maintenance periods. This included Melbourne. They would have been at uh, 48 hours notice for sea. (laughs) I can imagine boiler casings removed for boiler cleaning, machinery apart for repairs, uh, when the orders to sail were given, obviously it was a mad scramble to get people back from leave and to get the ships ready for sea. And there are numerous stories about the ingenuity of sailors getting back and the goodwill of airlines, police and other organisations to get them back. The Dockyard and Naval Stores organisations also came to the party and worked extremely hard to get the fleet away. <laughs> Fortuitously, Melbourne had, earlier in the year, carried out a disaster relief exercise, and this gave significant guidance in the stores needed and the organisation to be set up. Melbourne sailed at 1700 on Boxing Day after the uh, departure of the uh, Sydney Hobart Yacht Race, 
uh, she had about 65% of her complement. Brisbane was in company. The fleet commander, Rear Admiral Wells, and his staff were embarked. As the ship left Sydney, eight Wessex helos were embarked, and at this time they had had their anti-submarine equipment removed. On the way up the coast, she conducted, ex she conducted planning sessions with input from all fleet units as well as from Navy office and established a management organisation to handle disaster. Off Townsville, she stopped and embarked about 240 sailors who had gathered there as well as more stores. They did fairly uh, significant physical work during the voyage, for example, splitting all the stores into 900 kilogram loads that the Wessex could handle. They even painted street signs. Everyone received cholera and tetanus inoculations. Melbourne arrived in Darwin and anchored on the morning of New Year's Day, uh, just a week after the cyclone had hit. Immediately, the disaster headquarters was set up at the residence of the Naval Officer Commanding North Australia, Captain Eric Johnson, or as he was nicknamed, the Big E. And Melbourne set up a headquarters organisation on board to coordinate RAN activities. <coughs> the Navy was initially tasked with helping clear up the worst hit suburbs of Nightcliffe, Rapid Creek and Casuarina, as well as helping to restore services and rehabilitate important buildings. On any one day, there would have been over 1,200 officers and sailors to shore, with about 400 coming from Melbourne. Some of Melbourne's electricians acted as linesmen, helping to restore power distribution. And in addition, they restored air conditioning to the Darwin Travel Lodge. This was the biggest motel, but it was necessary uh, to accommodate tradesmen and other people coming up from the south. The air conditioning plant had been in the basement and was submerged. But the ship's chief electrician managed to get the motors manhandled outside, uh, hailed a passing helicopter, lift them to the roof and where they were stripped and dried out. I mean, in fact, for Melbourne's electrical people, this was bread and butter maintenance. But uh, with modern uh, alternating current machinery that uh, was around, I guess it was a little bit different. Uh, when insulation readings were accepted, acceptable, it reversed the process and eventually got the air conditioning working. Melbourne shipwrights were called on to clear the local slipway where a trawler had blown over. They succeeded in writing it and clearing the slip and then slipped the first of the attack class patrol boats, all without external power. <laughs> Melbourne was also uh, used to provide accommodation for VIPs. On the day after arrival, she accommodated the general, sorry, she accommodated the Governor General and the Deputy Prime Minister. The embarked helos through the period in Darwin provided daily shuttle services between the ships and shore as well as moving stores. They carried about 7,900 passengers. They made 2,500 landings and moved 111,000 kilograms of stores over a 17-day period. On January the 18th, Melbourne and Hobart departed Darwin to prepare 
for participation in RIMPAC 75. Thanks, Tom. In fact, uh, a family friend of mine uh, was in Darwin uh, when the cyclone struck, and uh, later he and his wife were invited on board Melbourne for lunch, and uh, they also had their, uh, the clothes that they'd been wearing for several days uh, put through the ship's laundry and then went to lunch with a, a white tablecloth and silverware, and they, they couldn't believe their eyes, uh, basically, how well they were looked after by the Navy. Admiral Swan. In 1977, you had the good fortune to take Melbourne to the United Kingdom for Queen Elizabeth's Silver Jubilee and the Naval Review. This was in company with HMAS Brisbane and the New Zealand frigate Canterbury. Are there any particular things that stand out from that deployment? Yes, well, thank you. Um, First of all, I must say I'm very proud to have had command of Melbourne on one of its longest and most demanding deployments that the ship had had. It started off being an exciting uh, deployment, but uh, from the time we arrived in uh, Colombo, things started to go wrong. First of all, Colombo uh, was still under communist uh, rule, you might say, influence. Uh, we went there for fuel. We ended up with uh, only Melbourne having been fuelled and the New Zealand ship. So we left Colombo without enough fuel to get to uh, the Suez Canal. Um, The Admiral had decided that the ships that hadn't got fuel should leave. And uh, we... um, then operated with the French Navy, and ultimately we got to Port Side, um, where we were promised fuel, but there was no fuel. Uh, we left on time to get through the Suez Canal. Uh, we got as far as the Great Bitter Lakes, and where we anchored to allow the southern uh, a convoy coming south to come through. And then the weather closed in and the pilot decided that he couldn't take Melbourne any further. I didn't have enough fuel left in Melbourne, or at least I only had 24 hours fuel left. And we couldn't therefore remain anchored in the Great Bitter Lakes for any length of time. Ultimately, we just we managed to get the pilot to agree to let us take Melbourne through, uh, which we did, a a hair-raising experience, I can assure you. Um, We went through uh, a very heavy dust storm, which covered the ship uh, from head to foot with sand, which meant we had to wash it down. Um, We got through to Port Side, and where we'd promised fuel, there was no fuel available. Ultimately, we fueled from a British uh, uh, fleet oiler. Um, then we were shadowed by uh, a Russian uh, spy ship, uh, which followed us for two or three days and tried very hard to prevent me from turning into the wind to launch and uh, uh, 
recover aircraft. Um, I can assure you I developed a lot of grey hairs overnight because quite often the Russian ship had the right of, had the right of way under the uh, rule of the road, but I had the difficult task of uh, getting the aircraft down on board. Um, we then operated in the Mediterranean uh, uh, against a American nuclear submarine, which was quite successful. While all this was going on, I had an admiral on board uh, who uh, became unfit for sea service. And uh, so I, he was put ashore in Gibraltar, um, unfit for sea. We pressed on and got to the United Kingdom, which was a great relief. And I can't um, say uh, more about uh, the British hospitality. It was marvelous. Um, we prepared for the fleet review and we did a rehearsal in perfect weather. But on the day of the review, there was a gale blowing and instead of being beam on to the Royal Yacht as it steamed past, we ended up being stern uh, on, which meant that the whole of the ship's company who'd lined the deck and all the VOPs on board who were in the forward, uh, um, uh, forward of the bridge couldn't really see the Royal Yacht. Um, in the gale that uh, was blowing, just as the Royal Yacht came past, the ship's ensign fell down, um, which was a bit of an embarrassment. Anyway, we survived that. I was extremely lucky uh, to have dined on board Ark Royal in the presence of Her Majesty. Um, afterwards, uh, the captains of the Commonwealth ships were presented to Her Majesty and somebody must have briefed her about my ensign, uh, which uh, she tipped me about and I said, I can recall saying words along the lines, um, Madam Sir Walter Raleigh laid his cloak before you, I laid my ensign. Uh, I remember the Duke of Edinburgh was not uh, that pleased. Anyway, it turned out uh, to be a very disappointing occasion, especially for the ship's company who'd worked so hard to get the ship presented. Uh, after that, um, we took part in a, uh, an exercise uh, around the west and north, north of the United, uh, United Kingdom. Um, we were the enemy. Uh, we actually exonerated ourselves fairly well. Um, after that, we started on the way home. But uh, in the meantime, uh, the Admiral, um, being unfit for sea, came back to Australia. So uh, Melbourne uh, uh, was under my command. The task force was under my command. Um, on the way home, we again, we operated uh, 
with the British fleet in the Mediterranean. We had a very successful visit to Naples, where the ship's company at last had a bit of relaxation. Um, I insisted that they wear uniform ashore as it was an official visit. Um, uh, the sailors, of course, being sailors, decided that didn't matter. They went across to the Isle of Capri, and there they went in, uh, in swimming costumes and so on. Anyway, it was a very successful visit. 180 of the ship's company volunteered to go to come with me and the three uh, padres on board to visit the Pope's um, summer residence at Gondolfo. Uh, there I was uh, fortunate enough to have an audience with Pope uh, Paul VI, who'd been to Australia. That was a very successful visit. Then we started on our way home, expecting fuel uh, in Egypt. Again, we had no fuel provided and we ended up uh, fueling from a British uh, uh, fleet tanker again after we went through the canal. Then had a very successful visit to um, uh, Bombay, uh, where we operated with the uh, Indian Navy. Fortunately, the Admiral in charge of the fleet there uh, had just recently done a course with me in England for 12 months. So uh, he was a communicator and I was a communicator. And although they didn't have the uh, NATO signaling books, we managed to operate for two or three days. The Indian Admiral, of course, was very keen that his uh, aircraft should come on board Melbourne and that we should send aircraft to his aircraft carrier. But I declined that because I thought it would be just my luck to have an Indian aircraft on board Melbourne and not being able to get off again. Anyway, we then uh, got back to um, uh, Singapore and home to Fremantle, which was a relief. I was exceptionally proud of the ship's company, especially the air group, because they operated, uh, as I mentioned, with the French Navy, um, with the Americans, with the British, and I must also say how proud I was of the engineering, both the marine engineering and the electrical engineering staff on board to keep that ship operational for such a long deployment. Thanks, sir. Sounds like a, an interesting uh, deployment, but perhaps one you wouldn't like to repeat. I certainly wouldn't like to do it again, but I'm very grateful and very thankful that I had such a privilege. Thank you. And finally, Jack McCaffrey. For much of the second half of her life, there was much effort on the part of the Navy to ensure her timely replacement. Why was that? And what did it ultimately come to? Uh, well, I think that the main reason for the great effort was that the carrier had become recognised as, as central to the Navy's force structure and, and its place in that force structure was often contested uh, within the Defence Department on the grounds of both cost and capability. So for, for the Navy uh, 
to achieve a timely replacement meant that we had to put in a really strong and consistent approach to convince the doubters in defence uh, and in government itself as well. Um, and flowing from that, I think there was also uh, a widespread and growing recognition in the Navy that Melbourne was getting older and her limitations were becoming more apparent. And I think Tom has already alluded to those. Uh, it's fair to say too that um, if we were looking forward a bit, say by the, the early 1980s, uh, the current generation of aircraft, the Trackers and Skyhawks, would also be well into the second half of their operational lives. And so uh, we had to, the challenge of finding a replacement ship and matching it with new aircraft, all at an affordable cost. And complicating that um, was the fact that the next generation of the, of the Tracker and Skyhawk type aircraft were considerably bigger and heavier uh, than the Tracker and Skyhawk and would have demanded a carrier, something at least uh, the, the size of the, the USNSX class, that is 40, 45,000 tonne ship. Um, and this was considered unaffordable um, and it led us to focus on a ship capable of operating um, more limited aircraft and in particular short takeoff and vertical landing jet fighter and attack aircraft and advanced ASW helicopters. Now, despite the lack of support in some parts of defence, uh, the Navy did succeed in gaining government approval to replace the Melbourne. And a project team was established uh, in Canberra and Washington DC in the mid 1970s. And the Washington office was associated with the fact that we were taking uh, an existing US um, amphibious ship design and turning that into our new carrier. Um, and it's probably worth mentioning too that um, while there was a huge effort uh, within the Navy to do this, not everyone in the Navy was necessarily um, fully convinced that this was the, the right way to go. And there, there was certainly some underlying feeling in some parts of Navy that um, too much of the Navy budget was tied up in naval aviation. Nevertheless, um, the, the, the route did seem fairly well set for us at that time. Uh, why did it ultimately fail? Um, well, I think amongst the reasons, uh, probably the, the greatest reason was uh, that there was um, real hostility to the project within defence. Um, as I've mentioned before, the Air Force um, antagonism was uh, long-standing. Uh, within the bureaucracy, um, the Force Development and Analysis Organization, FDA, um, more commonly known by us as Force Destruction and Annihilation, um, and uh, Mr. Alan Wrigley, the uh, Defense or the Deputy Secretary who was in charge of FDA, uh, were strong and consistent opponents, taking every opportunity to contest the project. And, and to be fair to them, that, that was their job. Their job was to contest uh, major equipment projects and ensure that the arguments being put up in support of them uh, were valid. But as I said, we, we did uh, achieve that, that aim and we did have an approved project uh, to replace the Melbourne. Um, again, why did we ultimately fail? Well, perhaps our decision to limit the ship's selection to ones capable of operating only those short takeoff and vertical landing aircraft and helicopters worked against us in that the only aircraft of that kind available, the Sea Harrier and uh, the AV-8, which was an American derivative of the Harrier, um, neither of those aircraft had the operational capability of their land-based equivalents. Uh, and that made arguments against the carrier a bit more easy to sustain. And of course, on the other hand, when, when we were considering larger, more capable ship and more capable aircraft, purchase and operating costs and crew challenge, uh, challenges ruled that option out. And I, I guess then the final uh, 
straw was probably the fact that having set out on this approved path to build a new carrier, we abandoned that effort in favour of buying HMS Invincible uh, when it was offered by the British government. And that probably was a case of when something seems to be too good to be true. Um, yes, it is. So having decided uh, on that course, uh, that is to buy Invincible, um, we were then undermined by the subsequent government decision to allow Britain to retain Invincible once the Falklands War broke out. Um, we then tried to get hold of uh, HMS Hermes, uh, another Brit carrier that uh, was becoming available, an old ship to be sure, um, but uh, that came to nothing. And the final nail in, in the, the RA in carrier coffin uh, was the election of the Labor government in early 1983, and it's almost immediate announcement that the Navy would not uh, get a new carrier. Thanks, Jack. On 30 June 1982, Melbourne was paid off. In her 27 years, she had conducted over 100,000 deck landings and had steamed nearly 900,000 nautical miles, the equivalent of going to the moon and back twice. Her last commanding officer, Commander Wally Rothwell, wrote, While she may not be termed a lucky ship, Melbourne in my, has, in my experience, been a happy ship, and I'm proud to have been her last commanding officer. I'd now like to ask the panel for their final thoughts on the aircraft carrier Melbourne. Admiral Swan. Melbourne was a great asset in her day, always held in high regard by the American and British navies. And that's a great tribute to those who manned and operated her. As we move from the major threat being from submarines to that threat being from guided missiles, her usefulness as a fighting ship became more limited, if not a liability which needed other ships to defend her. She also was too old. One could not expect the modern day sailor to live in such antiquated conditions on board. But in conclusion, she was a graceful, graceful lady who had served the country well, but her time was up. It was a sad day as I was in a tender following her to leave Sydney Harbour. I can never forget that sight. Thank you. Thank you, sir. Tom DeVoyle. There are three points I would like to mention <clears throat> about Melbourne and her influence on the Navy. Firstly, I believe that Melbourne was a great leveller. She provided stability and continuity for the REN's engineering branch over the years she was in commission. So many young engineer officers, officers served as part of her ME department under the guidance and oversight of wise and experienced engineers and senior sailors. And this contributed to the overall capability and strength of the engineering branch. <laughs> it introduced the young officers to the ways and traditions of the Navy, and it showed how all the branches worked together to form an effective ship's company. Secondly, there is a perversity in the nature of human beings that a team working in harsh conditions becomes closer and more tight-knit the worse the conditions seem to be. The working and living conditions in Melbourne were dreadful but they resulted in a very close-knit team with a high industry decor 
particularly in my department. One example is that the department formed its own rugby team run by and for sailors, and it played some outstanding games against other ships' teams. When I have attended reunions and talked to men who served in Melbourne as young lads, regardless of which other ships they served in, they almost universally claimed their time in Melbourne was the best, much to my amazement. <clears throat> in an article I wrote in 1982 for the Fleet Maintenance Bulletin, I said, and I proceed part of it, 1955 correspondence made it obvious that it took a lot of blood, sweat and tears to get the so-called new ship going and keep it running. 27 years on, it was no way, it, not any easier. The crew was selected from a community supposedly accustomed to the easy life, according to some social commentators, yet they succeeded in running the old ship and the latest generation showed just as much loyalty determined determination and guts as their predecessors. I still stand by those comments. So thirdly, and on a more sombre note, uh, and uh, Admiral Swan has referred to it, Melbourne's hull had reached the end of its useful and safe life. She had endured two major collisions. It was structurally unsound and would have been an enormously expensive project to bring it back to an acceptable condition. I've written elsewhere that I believe she had become unseaworthy. Whilst I and many others regretted passing a fixed-wing aviation in the RAN, the time had come for Melbourne to bow out gracefully. I feel we should have taken up the offer of Art Royal or Invincible, with which I had some acquaintance. Thank you. Thank you, Tom DeVoyle. Jack McCaffrey, what are your final thoughts about your time on board the aircraft carrier Melbourne? Uh, thanks, Greg. And yeah, like Tom, I've got three that I'd like to make. Um, firstly, for those of us who got to fly from the Melbourne, it, it was almost certainly the most professionally satisfying time of our naval lives. It certainly was for me. Um, but I'd like to um, emphasise a point that the other two speakers have already made. And I think the fact that we've each come to make this point independently just shows how important it, it was in the overall scheme of things. And that is, um, an awful lot of people worked incredibly hard to make it happen, i.e. to make the flying effort happen. And their working and living conditions were tough. And if I were to point to any particular groups in that sense, uh, they would be the officers and sailors who worked in the machinery spaces, uh, the aircraft handlers and their supervisors on the flight deck and the hangar, and the squadron aircraft maintenance teams. And in, in short, then, it, it was a total team effort that made it all work. Um, secondly, I think it takes time to, to get the most out of new equipment. And I think the ship with its air group reached its operating peak in the, in the Tracker and Skyhawk era in about 1974. And I note the performance in Exercise Kangaroo 1 in that year as an example of that. Uh, we had up to nine Skyhawks, six Trackers and eight Wessex on board. And I think that the ship and air group performed to a very high level during that major exercise. And as been already pointed out by um, Admiral Swan, I think we maintained that uh, over the years uh, succeeding. Finally, I, I think it's worth pointing out uh, that the mobility and self-sufficiency that a carrier and its aircraft represent are really very valuable commodities. Uh, Tom has discussed the response to Cyclone Tracy and Melbourne's part in it. Uh, it's notable that we had much greater difficulty in assembling and carrying a force to Fiji during the country's first coup in 1987 
because we no longer had that capability. So the recent entry into service of the big deck amphibious ships, Adelaide and Canberra, hopefully show that we have learnt a lesson from that. Thank you. Thanks, Jack. That is all we have time for now. My thanks to Rear Admiral Ross Swan, Commodore Jack McCaffrey, and Commander Tom DeVoyle. This podcast is produced by the Naval Studies Group at the University of New South Wales. Its production is supported by the Royal Australian Navy Sea Power Centre, the Australian Naval Institute, the Naval Historical Society of Australia, and the Submarine Institute of Australia. Thank you for joining us. And if you like this episode, please rate it on your podcast app so others can learn of the Australian Naval History podcast series. Goodbye for now.